are in the grotto pod. I thought maybe I was supposed to say something. I am in the grotto pod. Okay. The voice you are hearing is Bridget Quinn, writer famous. She is in the grotto pod. We are here on a sweltering oh my God. day in the grotto pod. So hot. I'm wearing a sleeveless top. The BQ is not only wearing a sleeveless top, it has her hair up. Oh, have you ever seen that before? No, because I don't attend races. I'm sure you have your hair up when you're racing. It's true, actually, now that you or say that. cycling. Uh, so hot. Uh, first, let me, let me say, before I get to my little awesome segue... Uh, first, our guest today is Kitty Stryker. I feel like I know where you're going with that hot thing. That is a strong name. It is very uh, strong. Is that her real name? We're going to find uh, We're probably not going to find out. We'll give it a shot, though, but okay. I doubt we'll get that it's information. It's a great name. She is the <coughs> author. Actually, she, it, she didn't write the book. What it's a rude a, question. Is that your is real that your name? Real, come on, really? Is that your birth name? Is so what let's see how rude say. we can actually yeah. be. She uh, just published an anthology called Ask. Nope. Oh, yes, yeah, she did. It's an Sorry. anthology. Yeah. Ask, a discussion of consent culture. So we're going to kind of dig into what she means by consent culture. It's kind of a timely issue. God, could it be more timely? Get a little political here and in the And you know, um, I want to talk to her especially about promoting the book uh, because of the crazy timing plus crowdfunding. Using crowdfunding to uh, fund her culture consent culture tour, which I think probably my guess is since there's also... Uh, she also curates a website, yeah. consentculture.com, I think, not org. Uh, I have a feeling the Consent Culture cor- Tour is probably more than a book reading. So we'll have her kind yep. of she explain what that's going to be all about. Workshops or whatnot. Uh, quite a colorful guest we have yes. here today. She is also the co-creator of the Struggle-O Circus. That's right, a coalition between radical activists and juggalos. I think I remember Beth Weingarner, producer extraordinaire, mm-hmm. saying that she's written about juggalos, and I want to know Beth more. Beth has written about juggalos? No. Kitty. Kitty has written about juggalos. She is a juggalo, for those of you not in the know or on the cutting edge. A juggalo is a fan of the band The Insane Clown Posse. Not just fans, though. They uh, It's like a movement. Dress up in the clown costumes themselves, which sounds terrifying to me, but hey. I think it's supposed to be terrifying. Who's squarer than me? The woman sitting across from me. I know. The two squarest people in San Francisco. Uh, in case you didn't know that by now, mm-hmm. it'll become quite clear about five minutes into this uh, interview. She has written for BuzzFeed, Vice, The Guardian, HuffPo, The Walrus, and a host of other publications, and is quite uh, in demand as a lecturer and a workshop runner. How would you describe uh, the milieu of these lectures and workshops? Kind of a, um, I guess her, her her subjects are sex, sex work, gender issues, uh, queer, queer issues. Yeah. Uh, consent of, culture. Consent culture. Yeah. Really all the things that are on the edge of the zeitgeist that we I just I, I do feel like the timing living. of all yeah. this stuff going on right now with Harvey Weinstein. Steen. Weinstein. Anti-Semite. I know. I'm sorry. I, and That's it. I, I'm out. I, <laughs> you know, you never know with that Steen Stein ending. Well, the Steen, I believe, is the non-Jewish German. The Stein is the German. Oh, but thus, I could be wrong. Frankenstein. Though I am the host of a podcast called Is It Good for the Jews, can be found at isitgoodforthejews.com or downloaded from iTunes. I am not a comprehensive How scholar when it comes to Judaism. Fred say his name? Fred says Stein, I think. I can't remember. I think Fred says Stein because I remember thinking Steen and being surprised and happy that I had never said it out loud before I heard Fred say Vogelstein. So there we go. I'm completely wrong. So many people we know we don't know how to say their last names. Mm, It's true. 
Because why would you ever walk around saying people's last names? You wouldn't. Oh, my gosh. I was at a dinner party a couple of nights ago, and a woman from San Francisco said, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 my maiden name, Rosen. Oh. And I was like, oh. Remember the to, tribe. Yeah, I have to hook you up uh, in the old-fashioned sense. In the old-fashioned sense. I was wondering, and I did a big thing uh, a couple weeks ago on my other podcast. Do Am I related to all Rosens on some level? I have no idea. I, I'm not because Quinn just means uh, son of Colin, I think, or Connor, son of Connor. That's it? Yeah. So You I, should, when you do readings, like have you ever thought of coming out to the song Quinn the Eskimo? No, but I like that idea. That'd be cool. I did. Oh, I'm glad you said this, Larry, because I did sign up for NaNoWriMo after we interviewed the fabulous Grant Faulkner. Last week. Yeah, and now he's up this week. You can go back and listen because it's a really good It's show. fantastic, and my awesome segue was going to be, it's 9 billion degrees outside. You'd never know it was late October. Right. Hey, it's it being late October, November. guess what it's almost time for? So the connection between that and Quinn the Eskimo is that I signed up because we had just had that conversation. Right. Uh, you with took the Grant. challenge. I took the challenge. I signed up, and I used the Mighty Quinn as my um, mm. author name, and then I realized I hated that. It felt way too much pressure. It is a little pressure. Because um, who can compete with Quinn the Eskimo? No one. So now I'm just back well, to because when he you. shows up, everyone's going to jump for joy. Right. So um, since I don't know how people will feel about that, I just went back to BQ. So you my know, author uh, name is BQ. You know what I do in those cases? <laughs> Tell me. Again, I was listening to a fabulous podcast this morning called Roderick on the Line. Uh, oh. By coincidence, the uh, John host, Roderick. John Roderick, who was in the Grotto Pod two weeks ago. You can also, that's the great thing about podcasts. You can just look them up anytime. You can look it up anytime. But he spent a long time talking about nicknames. And I thought, nicknames, well, you know, I've always been more of a giver than a receiver of mm-hmm. nicknames. But somewhere along the line, I started using a shorthand for everything lefty because I'm a left-hander. And oh, it's one of my yes. favorite things about being me. Lefty. I always use lefty. I believe you have an email address with left hand. I do. I do. But then I, is that a real nickname? Because I kind of self-glossed. I gave it to myself. doesn't really uh, count, right? Can you give yourself a nickname? That's a good question. Uh, Roderick didn't get into that on his show? He didn't. He only talked about nicknames he had been given and that he was n- sort of nickname resistant. Not not Personally? by choice, oh, but yeah. it just kind of worked out stick. that way. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I have been called BQ almost yeah. my entire adult life. In fact, when my oh oh boy, I'm going to mean, bongo that out. Sorry, uh, when Roy and I got married, I keep forgetting the rules. Uh, and they, you know, they said like blah blah, Bridget, you, BQ, and Dave. then. I, Roy. He said my name out loud, and I don't think I had ever heard him say it before. <laughs> and it sounded so funny because he's from the Midwest, and so it was like all consonants, like Bridget. <laughs> it was a heavy use of the word. So I, and then I was happy that he doesn't call me well, that. Well, I think the, the BQ moniker is sort of crossed over and is no longer a nickname. You'd have to, yeah. it's like Buster Posey. You'd have to come up with another nickname on is, top of Buster. That's not his real name? I don't think Buster is. His I don't know. Real I've name. only ever heard it. I, when my, you know what? My, I'm going to look this up. Keep look talking. it up right now. So when my daughter was little, so as a joke, I started calling Roy by his initials, like decades ago before the kids were born, because his initials don't really flow so mellifluously. That was hard to say. As BQ. Mellifluous? Something like that. Mellifluously. And um, so I started calling him by his initials, and she told me that she was pretty old when she realized that those weren't our real names. And then she thought, oh, she always thought it was an amazing coincidence that both of us had initials for names. That is an amazing coincidence and also yeah. not true. No, exactly. <coughs> Gerald kind of story. Dempsey Gerald is Posey, his name? which is my dad's name also. 
Gerald? Yeah. But it's not a good name for a catcher. Gerald. Jerry. Jerry, maybe. Gerald. Jerry. Isn't. Yeah, it's, it's all right. Gerald's a poet's name. Gerald. Yeah, Buster, though. Buster, that's a good that's name. really good. Uh, How about Panic? That's his real name. What a great name. Joe Panic. Joe Panic. It would not make me feel comfortable. Oh, my God. That's an I'd awesome name. I'd always be name. on edge. How about Grant Faulkner? What? That I think Grant Faulkner is the best name of names we've had in the Grotto Pod. 38 episodes. Yep. Grant Faulkner could be, you know, a, 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 a um, Confederate general. <clears throat> or he could have been a great writer. Uh, in a previous lifetime and again now because if you haven't listened to that episode, his real name is William Faulkner. Please do listen to the episode. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, you, let me let me get, let, let me let you behind a curtain here of the Grotto Ooh. Pod. Uh, how the sausage is made. How the sausage is made. Our guest, Kitty Stryker, will be here in exactly one hour. Okay. But between now and then, uh, writer famous Bridget Quinn, BQ to you and me, <laughs> has a meeting with her agent. Uh-huh. So she's going to big time me. She's going to yep. go do that. I'm going to go wander around in the heat. So when I return, I'll be good and sweaty. Are you really going to go do that? I'm going to go get some food. Oh, I thought you brought some with you. No, no. There's no okay. food in my house. My wife's I, been gone for a week and a half, and I don't shop when she's gone. I, I have to let everyone know that Larry does not eat. Oh, I eat plenty. So let me tell you, that burrito I had me. last night after the Warriors game, Yum, that, that was so plenty good. to eat at 9 o'clock at night. So oh, I love the burrito. <clears> we're not going to play our normal little game where we say, let's go get her, because we're not going to go get her. No. We're going to go do other stuff yep. for an hour. Yes. Uh, but you, listener, sit tight. Yes. Uh, we got our, I, I think Kitty Stryker's going to come in hot. Yep. Stay that way the whole time. Oh, she'll definitely stay so hot. we have a treat for you. Be hot well, in we're here. all going to come in hot because it's going to be really yep. hot in here. So, uh, again, that's an added bonus. We actually do run the risk of expiring in the in the pod, pod the grotto pod today because it's so hot. It's always a risk. Added today risk. is, uh, I think, dangerous. It's I'm just not trying to give. To I'm do. trying to. I'm trying to give us a narrative arc. Oh, oh, so they good. Say, oh, oh, I got to keep like listening. Foreshadowing. Let's see what happens. Will they die? Will they die? <laughs> or perhaps just faint. Or faint. We'll see. Check back yep. in what stay seems tuned. like a few seconds, but will be an hour. Yep, stay tuned. Welcome, Kitty Stryker, to the tiny little grotto pod. <laughs> On the hottest day in San Francisco. Uh, and I just want to get this out of the way. We are probably the squarest people that you will come across today. <laughs> Just Maybe today. Pre- just prepping. Uh, I don't know. In all of San Francisco, Larry and I were like, hmm. Mm, is there anyone We've been married for us? over 50 years. To be <laughs> I watched Not him. to each other. I watched multiple football games on Sunday. Wow. But the other thing, I was thinking just now, so we recorded our intro about an hour ago because Bridget had a meeting with her agent. Yeah, fancy. That was a little fancy. And I had to go battle like thousands of millennials to try to get food. Yeah, that's, that's the, real. Yeah, I went to the, the worst. Uh, and this is. I know you were gone a long time. Well, I went. This is really professional podcasting. This is but all I, we do, though. I went to <laughs> the. Uh, I went to the um, little food truck gathering yep. over there because that's usually, very millennial, right there. Usually, let me explain to you, Kitty. Here at the Grotto, lunch is usually at one. Right. So you go out to get your stuff at one, no problem. You go out there at twelve, and it's like standing in line for the Jungle Cruise. So yep. I, I can't stand in line for forty-five minutes. So. What'd you I, eat? Uh, I went to that small food place and got something horrible. See, the millennial thing to do would be to hire a task rabbit to stand in line for you. <laughs> or, and then you just show up when you need to order the I food. I think I need to stop slagging on millennials. That's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> Larry's like, wait a second. My millennial nephew told me about how you can order, because he's a, 
is it called the PA when you work in films? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he texts Starbucks ahead of time, yep. the order, and then you just I have, have that app on my phone. Yeah. I was like, what? I didn't even know. It's like a millennial secret. I didn't even know it existed. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, but enough about food. <laughs> As I was doing that, though, I realized that you're the second kitty I've known in my life. And the first was Kitty Espinda, who threw a rock at me in sixth grade. Oh. Okay. So at question. the time. I mean, that's terrible. Let me, I'm going to finish the story. At the oh, time. Sorry. So she hit me right here in the top of my head and I got stitches. At the time, they said, you're going to have a scar, but that's fine unless you lose your hair. Uh, I've heard the story before. No, you have. Yes, I have. I didn't know it was Kitty, though. (laughs) Anyways, welcome, Kitty. Hi. Um, Wearing a very cute Kitty t-shirt also. What is the, uh, what is it? I just can't. Oh, it just says, I I can't even. I want to talk a little bit about the book. Let's start with the book because that's what we were talking about. I was before. just ooing and awing over it because I had not we seen it on in the mics. physical presence, and it's beautiful, which is really nice. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about the aesthetics. It's so, so can you say a little bit about the aesthetics for our? Uh, audience at home? Sure. So originally, we weren't really sure what to do on the cover. I knew that I didn't want it to be black, red, and white, mm-hmm. or yellow, because those are all the colors that books about rape and sexual assault, always those colors. Sort of alarming colors. Very alarming, uh, very um, politically charged in a lot of ways. Like It's supposed to be very like startling. And I was like... A, that's been done a million times before, so writing another book about rape culture in any capacity that looks like that, it's just going to be easily ignored. Yeah. And secondly, like, it doesn't make me excited to pick it up. It's like, oh, no, here we go. Like, I mean, I've read so many of those books, and it's like, I see a red cover, and I'm like, oh, no, all right, it's it's, coming. It gives you sort of a take-your-medicine feeling. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted it to be uh, basically 80s colors. I was like, yeah, I want it to be like turquoise and hot pink. It does make me think a little bit of Don Johnson. And I remember my uh, the the publishers were like, that's going to be really gaudy. Like that's that's sounds hideous, and I'm like, I don't care. That's my aesthetic. Like that's what I want. Hideous is what I like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, as a as a as a survivor of the '80s, I don't find that maybe because I'm an '80s veteran, I don't find that startling at all. In fact, I find the cover, the turquoise, it looks like water. It looks very friendly. You yeah, know, it's like it a vacation. Soothing, so, why is it important that a book about consent be friendly? Well, I think that people feel lectured a lot about consent. And I wanted to, I mean, I I tried to make it very clear in this book, both in getting people to, um, to be interested in writing for it and also in the creation of it and explaining it to people. I wanted to say, like, I don't have the answer. I don't think there is the answer. I have a lot of questions and I have a lot of potential answers, but I don't want people to feel that I'm preaching to them. Mm-hmm. I want them to feel like I'm starting a conversation. Which is really refreshing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because I think, I mean, I grew up, my mom's a second wave feminist. I grew up, like, marching and take back the night and, like, doing stuff like that. So, like, I'm used to a very political, angry conversation talk about that. around sexual yeah. violence. And I was like... I've done that for 30 years, and I'd like to try doing something that was maybe a little more friendly and like, hey, yeah, I get it. I understand that there's a lot of emotions involved in this, but 
maybe we can try to not re-trigger ourselves while we're having these conversations. That would be cool. <laughs> you know, I really, I want to kind of just circle back around. So first of all, so fascinating. Your mom's a second wave feminist. Mm-hmm. And for second wave feminists, this is your world is a tough one. Yes. And so can you just talk a little bit about that? Everything about my world is yeah, tough. Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, I, I have to admit my mom and I aren't talking to each other right now because she said something that was uh, microaggression and very liberal on my wall. And a bunch of my friends were like, dude, what the fuck? Like, how did you let your mom say this? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to have this really difficult conversation with her about that. And it didn't go She well. wasn't good with it? No. <laughs> but I mean, like, I don't know. She's been very supportive of my sex work, but I think that not as supportive as she's presented to me. Right. Um, historically, she's been very positive to me about being in sex work or being interested in BDSM. And a lot of the other things that I talk about, but I think that in practice, she's a little further back than I expected. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just a different paradigm? Same, I mean, same goals, different paradigm? I think that it's, there's a certain amount of fear that I think is For a justified sure. fear that if you say sex work is, can be okay, you're ignoring power dynamics. If you say that BDSM is okay or can be okay, you're ignoring power dynamics that are in play all the time, whether you're conscious of them or not. And there are things about second wave feminism that I found I actually agree a lot with. Mm -hmm. Um, My understanding of consent is that I don't believe that under a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, anyone can give 100% consent. I think that we're always under a lot of societal and personal pressures to give consent. So... Therefore, if I believe that 100% consent is not possible, the best I can ever hope for is as close to that as I can get. But I always have to have a margin of error that I could be wrong. And I feel like that informs a lot of my consent work. This idea that no matter how good your intentions, intentions aren't magic and you could be wrong. I don't think we really talk about that. We want... Whoa, we don't have any gray areas in our world like that. Like, right, like, right. Like there's perpetrators and there's victims and there's no in-between and there's no acknowledgement of the ways in which those things can interact with each other or how often perpetrators were victims. Like all of so, that's just ignored. Okay, Whoa. so and, and so and <laughs> Mind blown. Bridget's head just exploded. Yeah, so it's a good thing there's no. padding in yeah. there. <laughs> so right. much padding. <laughs> to catch the shards of Bridget's head as they, as they flap off. But I really want to, I want to, Focus a little bit on the book too. So, well stated. I know, like, beautifully well said. Well stated. How do you turn that into that book? Well, first of all, and I, I got to admit, a little bit was my own cowardice because I was, I was a little scared to just write this book myself. I got it. Right. I was like, it's I don't anthology. think that I'm ready to do that yet. Well, can I interrupt here? Give us a little bit of your background as a writer. I know you've written for a lot of publications. Yeah, I've written for Vice, for BuzzFeed, uh, Wear Your Voice, uh, The Frisky, The Walrus, The Guardian, Guardian. HuffPo. The Guardian. HuffPo. Yeah, everyone's written for HuffPo, so, like, let's be honest. They don't pay any money. Um, did did you everyone pro- hear that? Uh, they all they know. should. They all yeah, know. They, they all don't know. pay. They don't yeah, pay. They're writers. They give you yeah. great exposure. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. But is a writer something you grew up wanting to be? I mean, is that, or is it something that you came to going, well, I have so much to say. I don't I think, think it better- is something that I initially like thought I'm going to be a writer when I grow mm-hmm. up. Like I was like, I'm going to be a, a, 
I don't know, a, a marine biologist. And then I was like, no, I'm going to be a veterinarian. No, I'm going to be a psychologist. And then when I went into school for psychology, I was like, this is really messed up. Like, yeah. I don't actually want to be a part of this system at all. I'm going to be a sex worker because I feel like that's more ethically sound. Wow. <laughs> being a psychologist. Yeah. There's, oh, I have to it's tell my... It's like mic drop after mic drop. I know. It's so awesome. <laughs> I, I have to tell you my psychotherapist story. It's very, very quick. I was on a subway and saw someone reading a newspaper across from me that said, Psycho the Rapist. <laughs> and I thought, what could it mean? Psycho the Rapist. And they got off and left their paper. And when I picked it up, I realized it said psychotherapist. Right. <laughs> and I think there's something maybe in that. There's something there. So was it a case of where you became an activist, which is I, I know that's probably uh, a 30,000-foot word to use, but it seems like the most yeah. accurate for what you do is Umbrella. activism. Yeah. Uh, and found that writing is a way to serve that, is another way to serve a component of that? Well, I mean, I think for me, I started writing with live journal. Oh, actually, I'm going to date myself here. I started writing with <laughs> dead journal because I was too goth for a live journal when I started uh, writing. Uh, I'm going to date myself and say <laughs> I've never heard of live journal. I see. <laughs> Goth, goth, I know. I heard of goth. Yeah, so so Live Journal is like um, like Medium is today. Okay. It's like a, a, a blogging platform, um, but more private. So you would like either be a public Live Journal or a private one. Um, and Dead Journal was a goth version of that. It was basically exactly the Love same, it. but funny. black background instead of white. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> more earnest. And, oh, yeah, there were a lot of feels. Probably. Yeah. Lots All of feels. All the feels there. Yeah. Um, but I was just writing because I had a lot of things to say. Mm-hmm. Like, and I had written, you know, terrible poetry, of course, when I was a teenager. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was on a website called Dark Poetry where I wrote a lot of terrible poetry so on there. So you were in. Yeah. I mean, I was writing a lot, but it was, for me, it was like journaling. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that I thought, oh, I can have a profession doing this. And at that time, you, were you thinking of it as a craft, as something to be good at? Um, I mean... Not really, honestly. I mean, like, well, which is probably good for the the poetry, at least. Well, and good for a fledgling writer, I think, to not be <laughs> I paralyzed think it's better. by that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I didn't really edit anything. I just sort of like verbal spewed onto a page, mm-hmm. and then was like, "Yep, there it is. That's that's what I feel." And Unlike the other goths. <laughs> We were carefully crafting their prose and, it and poetry. And, and was there a point where you started getting positive feedback and thought, hey, wait a minute, this could be part of the package? Well, I mean, dark poetry actually was a really big uh, reason for that because um, it's a community of people and everyone like compliments each other's poems and like, gives each other feedback. Oh, that's and so nice. So that was like a community that I sort of my older teenage years was a part of. And that made me feel more inspired to share my writing more publicly. Then I tried doing slam poetry like twice and was terrified and was like, I am never doing this again. And I stopped writing poetry after going to like two slam poetry things. You're no stranger to public speaking now. Was it the the poetry element that made it so scary? It was the judgment. People were very judgy. Right. And when you're like exposing all of these like raw feelings and then you've got a bunch of people like sneering at you like... I do this so much better. It's like, oh, God, no. Like, this is not what I wanted. Um, It is in the name. Yeah. Slam. Yeah. There's a lot of slamming involved. Yeah. Um, So, but I wasn't, I mean, I'm still scared of public speaking. Like, I still, when I go up and I address a university, I'm, like, literally shaking. 
but it's something that I challenge myself to do. Mm-hmm. I'm so impressed that you still do it. Like, I love people. I love actually seeing public speakers like that who are just. Sometimes I have it. to like. Okay, I'm taking like an extra Adderall, like so I can get through this. Like, um, I do have a prescription. Everyone, like, yeah, she's not buying it on the street. Yeah, <laughs> though there's nothing wrong with that in my but, opinion. But and not to get too bogged down in this, but do you feel like you're a good public speaker now? Because you certainly seem to I, do it. I think so. I mean, I think that a lot of what I care about with my public speaking, almost especially when it comes to universities, is I do not want to do academic right. ivory tower talk. I swear a lot when I'm speaking to colleges. Like, I try, if I can, I show the porn so everyone laughs and kind of gets over their anxiety mm-hmm. about talking about sex. Um, as I like it to be a casual environment. In fact, I prefer to do talks where I'm just like, so here's some stuff, and now ask me a lot of questions, and we'll a- answer your questions, because I'd rather do that than lecture. Which seems like that's a consistent thread that runs throughout your work, just yeah. kind of busting up the ivory tower type of yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be so fey and, and But also mannered. the title of your book is Ask. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I, I think there's a lot of telling. Right now in our culture, and yeah. Roger that. Yeah, and I mean that's a pretty. It's it's really exposing in some ways to invite the question, and to be ready to answer is really a gift to people. So, do you feel drained after these? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. because that's giving a lot of yourself. I mean, I would say especially over the last couple of weeks, where there's been a lot more conversations about sexual assault in the oh, yeah. media. Can we, can we say like what amazing timing oh, in terms God. of this book coming out right now? I mean, I'm really sad that of that's course. the case. I was kind of like, oh, Trump's president, so this is going to be relevant for the next four years. But now it's really, and relevant. now it's like extra super it's relevant. Crazy. Yeah, which you know, I'm kind of like. Yay! I know, you know. And certainly, it's a it's a fortuitous time to have a book that that treats that subject as something to ask about rather than to tell about. Yeah, that that's definitely my hope. And like to talk a little bit about how this book came together. Yes. Like I knew that uh, I actually had proposed this book to another publishing company, and they wanted me to have primarily white famous writers they in the book to sell. And I was like. You know, not, that is not the goal not that I gear. have. Like, and I mean, that feel it's kind of weird to try to sell a book where you're like, I don't know how well this will do. Right. But it's really important well, that it be this. That's kind of what I was getting at before, where, where writing and books are, are a component of what you do. Yeah. Uh, not like, I'm going to write a book and that's going to make me famous, man. Yeah. No, okay, I so mean, I kind of hope that this doesn't make me famous because <laughs> like, I don't want to be talking about this for the rest of my life. That would be heavy. Um, yeah. So you put together a proposal. Did you know how to write a book proposal? Uh, not really. Um, I had been an intern at Cleus Press, so I had a little bit of experience and I kind of knew what they would be looking for. Um, and I have friends who've written books, so I was able to like get them to give me some feedback. That's such that key. was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of it was guesswork, and like I do a lot of marketing and social media stuff. So I figured, like, well, okay, so I got to sell this, and I got to say, like, here's similar products on the market, and here's how this is similar, and this is how this is different. And you, by accident, had hey, I got a good platform. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that was just, I mean, and a lot of that's from porn. Well, I, <laughs> oh, you probably I, have a huge platform. Yeah. yeah. Well, so uh, how hard was it to find someone to take the book? Um, it took a couple of years. That's oh, long. Yeah, I mean, I I sent it out to a lot of places. I tried to focus mostly on local uh, places, but Cleus was already kind of 
crumbling mm-hmm. as a like a sex book place, um, and they moved and they got sold. Mm-hmm. I think so. That wasn't that was originally what I was hoping for, but that didn't pan out. Um, and then I tried a couple of feminist presses, and that was like eh. fraught. They wanted they wanted you to be famous already for writing, and it's like one of those things where it's like you're pitching a book, and they're like, "Yeah, but we want you to already have a book." That's and that's like, most writers' that's, dilemma, I would say. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, my dilemma. And and yeah. I thought maybe I should self publish, and I was like, I wrote out a list because I'm a Capricorn, and we like lists, so I would write out lists of like, here's the pros of me doing this myself, here's the cons, I'd have to raise a lot more money. Um, it would it'd be a lot, a lot harder to manage. Yeah. It's a lot everything. harder to get bookstores to pick it up. Yep. Almost um, impossible. Yeah. You know, so, and I mean, and there were some choices I made about who wrote the foreword and the afterword. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that for a minute. So I knew that I wanted this book to be mostly marginalized writers. I also knew that I didn't want them all to have already published stuff. Like, I wanted to find people who hadn't had their voices. So unpublished. Wow. Totally unpublished or no book unpublished? Some of them, I mean, some of them are totally unpublished. Like, some of them ran sex parties or they, uh, one of them is a burlesque performer. You know, like, and I was like, well, I think you you have important things to say. You found them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So my next question is, by the way, I think that's really awesome because everyone's got a good story. How hard was it? to get their writing into shape, publishable. And Um, what role did you play in that? There's really only a couple of pieces that I will not call out that I had to rewrite. Mm -hmm. I did kind of have to rewrite them. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that was because in the process, I set a bunch of deadlines that were way like longer than what I needed. I, I had like my deadlines were like I need this a week before I have to send it in. Mm-hmm. But I would tell them like I need it a month before, of course, so that way of family <laughs> issues would happen. I had a couple right. of people drop out at the last minute. I was able to get new people in. And explain how you went from the dark poetry to having the confidence to know that you could get this writing into shape. Or not even that, that you could manage this project. I think, um, well, I've done a lot of work with sex workers in writing, and um, I've written my own stuff for several other anthologies. So I figured that between that and having a personal relationship with the writers and, like, checking in with them a lot and asking them what they needed and giving them extra time or saying, like, hey, if that theme isn't working for you, let's work around that. Let's pick something else. Um, that was really important so to So you me. were really hands-on. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, tr- I, I guess what I tried to do is be like, here's all the resources I can offer you. If you want them, they're yeah. there. And I'll just remind you once a month that they're there. So yeah. that way, if you feel like you're bogged down, you can ask, and it's okay. In other words, the dream editor. Yeah, <laughs> and you and this is how you sold it to I forget the name of the press, but uh, uh, Thorn Tree to Thorn Tree, Tree Press. press uh, after first going through the one press, it said, "No, we want famous. Yeah, we want Barbara Streisand to write something for this." <laughs> I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm a middle-aged Jewish man. First name I thought of. Um, <laughs> my mom. Would Wait, be so what about happy. like um, Gloria Steinem? Oh, sure. She Gloria might be Steinem. Jewish. I don't know, but anyway, she is. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> You presented it as is. What sort of feedback did they have for you? 
Well, I mean, I when I, I actually I know the people who run Thorn Tree, so okay. like we knew each other from social circles already. And when I said, look, That's like I really want to have a book that has people of color prioritized, that has trans people, gender queer people prioritized. In fact, I want to prioritize them by giving them two extra months to submit pieces, and then I'll just fill in the blanks with you know, white cis people, because that's going to be super easy. I know loads of them who will be happy to throw something in here. But by giving people who may have needed more time because of structural oppression, really, um, you know, and, and mental health issues and all of these other things, by giving them extra time, it helped, I think, prioritize that. So about half of my writers are people of color. About half of them are trans or gender queer. Obviously, there's some overlap between And you were going to say something, I don't know if you did, about the forward and afterward writers. Oh, yeah. So, so one of the things that I did was I was like, okay, I know that I have to get this book to sell, right? So Carol Queen had been supportive of me doing consent culture work for she's famous. like six years or something. Like she's always been one of the biggest signal boosters of the work I've been doing. So I was like, okay, she'll she'll definitely do this. And then Lori Penny um, is a friend of mine from England, and she's a feminist writer, and she's actually a little bit younger than me. So I was like, oh, this is great. Like we have someone who. Is a generation mm-hmm. before and a generation kind of after. Mm-hmm. And that's like a really good way to frame this. But they're also famous white feminists. Right. And I feel like having them be the reason why white cis people will pick up this book is going to be super helpful. Well, and but that does bring up an interesting quandary that you're facing. I mean, you're writing the book not to get rich, but to raise awareness. Right. Or you're, you're writing. You're putting the book together. Right. To do these things, but there comes a point when you understand that one of the ways to get the book out to more people is to compromise a little bit and have these big names in there. So they go, ooh, Carol Queen, what's she got to say? Yeah. Was that hard to the hard bridge to cross? Well, what I did was I wrote to all of the people who are interested, especially like people of color, and said, Hey, so I want you to know that this is a trick that I'm playing on the people at large. Like, I'm doing this on purpose. Like, I want to make this look like a white feminist book that's going to be super easy and friendly. And then I want to hit people hard with a lot of provocative stuff that they've never thought about before. Are you down for that? Like, I understand, like, it would be cool if this was an anthology put together by a person of color. I'm not that, but here's what I'm trying to do. And, and they were like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. They were, because I was wondering, oh, great. as first-time writers, were they invested in the idea of getting more people to see their stuff? Um, I think that they were invested in getting to say things that other people would not publish. Right, but did it matter to them whether or not more people buy the book? Um, I mean, I think that they trusted me in my platform that I would get a lot of people to read the book. Anyway, can we talk a little bit about your platform's involvement in promoting the book? Because I'd never seen this before. You're crowdsourcing for the book tour. Yeah. Which is kind of genius. Yeah. And how is it going? It's going pretty well. Um, I think that, I mean, actually, I was really surprised. I threw a book launch party at my favorite local dive bar uh, because I was like, well, I've been drinking and yelling at you guys about (laughs) consent for the last year. I feel like I owe you a party. That's my kind of book launch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was great. And like, 
like things that I thought were really cool about that was that people who are friends of mine who are sober felt comfortable not drinking at this bar because mm-hmm. this was a bar that I had a personal relationship with. And so I told the bartender in advance, like, look, not everyone's going to drink. You have to be okay with that or I'm not going to have this here. And so, like, I, I made a lot of points. How do you, that get, how do you get people to do so, things that aren't in their best interest? I know. It's like, I, I just have to say, wait, that is so awesome. Like, to be so aware of everyone in your community is a lot of responsibility. It's it's super tiring. And exhausting. But I feel like it's That's really important. Very cool. Like, I wanted every aspect of this book to be about consent culture. That is blowing like, my mind right I, now. I think you threatened him and said, I'm going to come in here five nights a week and yell at you and drink. <laughs> I mean, a little bit of that. Okay, so then you tell your sober friends, like, hey, it's cool. It's at a bar, but they know what's up. It's all yeah, good. and I also yeah. made sure that the other three book events, like I've got one um, on Friday, and then I've got one at Good Vibes. And I've got one um, at the Bindery. Uh, books, books oh, Inc. The is bindery, yeah, I'm excited yeah, about that. Fun, yeah. Very um, but all of those aren't bars. Yeah. So I was like, well, yeah. here's three free events that you can go nice. to that aren't based in bars. So you can totally do that instead. I won't be hurt. But if you want to come to the launch, it's here. There's going to be bands. There's going to be snacks. There's going to be sparkling water. People selling like, you know, weird queer stuff. Like, there's going to be stuff for you to do other than drink. So, but the, That's the, awesome. But the GoFundMe is designed to raise money for an actual tour, right? Yeah. Can you, I, we were talking about that earlier and I said, I'll bet it's not a regular tour where you're just up there reading because I'm thinking it's, you know, it's part of a bigger message you're getting out there. It's a tool to get your message out. I'm thinking this isn't a go to bookstore and just sit there and read your book. Describe what the tour would be like. And will you yeah. be bringing some of the writers with you? Um, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to. Um, especially like Portland. Um, one of my friends, Cinnamon Maxine, who's one of the people who wrote who, for this. And you're reading, with, you're appearing with her. Uh, them. They, them. Yeah. Pronouns. Right. Um, but we're doing a thing together on Friday. Where are you going? Oh, that's the one at Book Sync. What day is today? It's Tuesday. Okay, whoa. Okay, you've got a lot going on. And then we're going to a Halloween party right afterwards. (laughs) That's hosted at their house. (laughs) So I'm probably going to go to the book thing in costume just for... Save time. Just save time. Yeah. And because that'll be more fun for me. (laughs) And everyone, probably. And everyone, yeah. (laughs) All right, so So, what's going to happen? Book tour. So I think think that what we're going to do is... (laughs) lion tamers. There might be some juggalos. I mean, yeah, we need to talk about that. (laughs) That that did happen at the book launch. (laughs) But I think that, um, you know, we're going to... One of the events, the one that's on Friday, is going to be a conversation where Cinnamon and I talk a lot Mm -hmm. about consent and how it relates to different aspects of our lives um, and the process of writing the book, because I think that's something that people don't really get to hear about. And I'm kind of going to let cinema guide what they want to talk about. Because, like, their piece in here about white fragility is, like, intense. It's a really intense piece, but really, really good. Super solid. And so I'm kind of curious to see what they want to bring to Alameda, of all places. Alameda? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought this was in Portland. No, no, no. no. no this is... Oh, Alameda. Yeah, yeah. that'll be yeah. awesome. It's going to be, it's yeah, gonna yeah, be yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Can I confess something? Uh, of course, always. I've, I've never been to Alameda. Wow. There's not a lot there, People but there is a pinball like museum, it. and that's I know, cute. I've heard that that's amazing, actually. Um, wait, I had a question about. I don't want to go to, to Juggalos quite yet, but um, I still but I really want to get to. I want to talk about the tour, but yes. I'm going to suggest that we actually the, the take listeners a break. take a couple minutes to open the door because I've never door. been this sweaty in here it's before. So, in my life. Yeah. so okay. let's take a couple minutes, and uh, listeners, you won't recognize it because we'll be right back. But yes. we'll be right back. Okay, bye. We're refreshed. 
We're ready to talk about the book tour. So what, how do you envision it going? And actually, do you have any dates lined up yet? Um, Well, I have three for the Bay Area. So I have have the Alameda one on Friday the 27th. -hmm. I have uh, the Bindery November 1st. And then I have um, Good Vibrations on Polk on the 6th. November 6th. Okay, yeah. will this be out by then? This will be out. Talk amongst yourselves. All right. <laughs> we can continue talking about the weather, which is what we talked about for the last 10 minutes. This will be out on the 7th. The 7th. Right. Yeah, that's fine. That's I mean, cool. honestly, I'm happiest when these events are kind of smaller so that I can, like, actually talk to everybody <laughs> who's yeah, there. Because yeah. if it's, like, more than 20 people, yeah. especially because when you talk about consent issues, you get a lot of people who want to disclose to you. Oh. oh and yes. I can handle maybe like three of those per that event. That's where your uh, Before I start psych- to get like, oh God. Your psychology training comes in handy. Yeah. And my boundaries I was come in really say, handy. You're going to have to have like, real boundaries. Hey, here's a trained professional. <laughs> Please go talk to them. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. But back to my original question. How are you going to stand the book tour on its head? Yeah. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to, I think it's going to depend on the milieu of the places I go. Um, like, for example, in L.A., a lot of my friends are uh, performers, um, some of them in porn, some of them other kinds of performers. I really want to do, like, a burlesque show about consent. Oh. So I'd like to do something that's really out of the box and be like, okay, like, I want you to do a performance about consent, whatever that means to you. It could be about consent being violated. It could be a- about consent going well. And see what that looks like and, like, start a conversation in that way, which I think would be really interesting. In Portland, it's probably going to be, like, me sitting, hopefully having a conversation, possibly having an argument with, like, another feminist about consent stuff. Because I think that since I straddle the line between sex-positive and sex-negative feminism, both sides kind of hate me. How do you straddle the line? (laughs) Well, I, I identify as a sex critical feminist. Yeah. I saw the I saw the phrase <laughs> sex, sex negative, negative yeah. and I didn't actually even know what that meant. So what I like to do sometimes is I like saying I'm a sex negative porn performer because I think that that really confuses people <laughs> yes. a lot and uh-huh. that encourages a conversation yeah. about what that looks like. If I heard that, I would think you're a porn performer, but you hate it. <laughs> and I mean, th- there is some truth to that. That happens for sure. But um, one of the things that uh, there's a person who wrote... Uh, a great blog. Um, I think the name was Rad Trans Femme, which means that she is a radical trans feminist, not a radical feminist right. who is trans, yeah. which makes a lot more sense. Originally, yeah. I thought she was a radical feminist who was trans, and I was like, how? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, like, that's what? A, that would be upending the paradigm. But a lot yeah. of the things that she writes about are sort of radical feminist ideas. Mm-hmm. And she's the one that I got the idea of, like, maybe consent can't be 100% mm-hmm. under the right. conditions That's, that we live. That is a radical feminist Yeah, concept, absolutely. Um, we just have differing ideas on what that means then and, like, how you move forward on that. Because mm-hmm. I think, like, well, if that's true, if you're going to have relationships with other people, this right. stuff's going right. to come up, whether you're doing BDSM or doing sex work or... Picking out who gets to have Cheerios and who gets to have cornflakes. Yeah, like absolutely. At the grocery store. No, (laughs) that's the kind of that's kind of shit we fight about in my relationship. We just fight over sugary cereal in my relationship. (laughs) Larry has no cereal. Cereal. Well, then is it accurate to say? And I, I think you alluded to this earlier that you saw a need 
to bring a different voice or different voices to consent culture. And that's sort of the genesis behind the book. Yeah. Less, less arguing and fighting and more well, and I think inquiry. That, I think that our ideas about... So what I was going to say about um, Rad Trans Femme, uh, Lisa Milbank, mm-hmm. um, is that what she wrote about... That's the name of the writer well, that of that familiar. blog. That's- yeah, um, I love her stuff. I mean, she definitely changed how I think about consent a lot. I actually like give her a shout out in the book because I'm like really grateful to. How did, how did that feel after a lifetime of reading books and seeing the thanks to and acknowledgments going? I wonder <laughs> what that's like, and then getting to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did a porn zine a little while ago, and I totally did a passive aggressive thank you to my ex boss, where I was like, <laughs> "Thanks for teaching me how to do shit on my own." Like, <laughs> Ooh, that's the best. Yeah, it, that felt really good. <laughs> but um, so one of the things that she talks about is that we have a misunderstanding about what sex positive feminism and sex negative feminism are. And she makes it into like a four square chart where there's sex negative feminism who believes and and has this understanding of power dynamics and awareness of those power dynamics, especially as it pertains to gender. Um, so there's that. There's that sex-negative feminism. But then there's also sex-moralism, which is what you get with the, like, the Christian, like, sex is bad, uh, you shouldn't do it, um, and how the sex-moralists have taken over sex-negativity to some extent. And sex-moralism is a patriarchal idea, while sex-negativity is a more feminist idea. But because they've ended up bonding together in some ways, we don't see a difference between the two. Similarly, sex-positive feminism would be about consent and would be, like, acknowledging that these power dynamics exist, but also, like, here are some ways that we try to mitigate that. But it's been taken over with this idea of sex is compulsory, which is a very, like, patriarchal idea that, like, oh, well, if sex is good is an inherent good, then it should always be good. And we should just, you know, be hedonistic, Mm -hmm. and that's great. And it's like, I think that when I was looking at it in that way, I was like, oh, actually, sex negativity and sex positivity have a lot more in common if you look at it like Mm -hmm. this. But we keep fighting because we keep thinking it's actually a fight between sex moralism and sex is compulsory. Which actually is a fight between the 1950s and the 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Basically. Um. I do want to focus a little bit on you as a writer, too. Um, not to keep harping on that. <laughs> writers, the right. Writers on Writing podcast. Because I'm curious just to... Oh, and I want to talk about Juggalos, too. I know, we got to get... But you've written about that? <laughs> that that's been, yeah, that's been my last year. It's a deep dive into Juggalos. You've done a deep dive for the last year in Juggalo. So, okay. Well, Before we, we talk move, about writers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give me the genesis of that. Uh, my boyfriend is, is a Juggalo. Is a second-generation Juggalo. His mom wait, is a Juggalo. Wait, wait. That can be true? Yes. I mean, possible? Well, she got into it. <laughs> I'm so old. Apparently, they she got into it about the same it. time. Yeah. Right. But she, oh, okay, okay, okay. she went way more into it than he did. Okay. So we're squares. <laughs> if you could explain to our audience. What, what is a juggalo? I have a sense of what a juggalo is. There's a song but called a sen- What is a Juggalo? <laughs> I think I have a sensationalistic idea of what it a juggalo is. It won't tell you what a juggalo is. Okay, tell great. Juggalo? Yes, tell us. <laughs> tell us. Um, so a juggalo is a fan of the Insane Clown Posse. Okay, that much I know. And other related bands called Horrorcore, uh, which actually wasn't started by the Insane Clown Posse. They just kind of made it more of a thing. Um, especially in white culture, in white 
working class culture. It's kind of a Midwestern thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Detroit. Yeah. Specifically. Super Detroit. Whatever you think of the Insane Clown Posse, come up with five better band names than Insane Clown Posse. I dare you. I mean, it's a pretty good It's luck. good. That's yeah. why they last. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that they also they last because they have a real commitment to mutual aid and they take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Intensely so. But that's um, poor people have to do that. Exactly. Yep. And that was one of the things that made me interested because I was like, wow, like Here's a bunch of poor people who are still, even though they don't have very much, are coming together and, like, donating shit tons of food to, like, that was a um, the ticket price to mm-hmm. see Insane Clown Posse at a couple of different concerts. Mm-hmm. They were like, bring two cans of, and li- they literally said this, not bullshit food, <laughs> because they used to be really poor. They were like, yeah. I, I don't want you bringing, like, cans of, like, past the sell-by date green beans. Right. I want you to bring fucking SpaghettiOs. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, okay, like, food that we would eat. Yeah. Okay, cool, we got that. And they just had so much food that people brought. What'd they do with it afterward? And they donated it to local food banks. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. And I was like, this is really cool. Like, it's cool that they'd be willing to do a concert, so many sure. concerts for that. And it's also really cool that people would bring more than two cans. So when you uh, become a serious fan. <laughs> yeah. You cross over. I think so. I mean, well, I was told by my partner and a couple of other our mutual juggalo friends that you become a juggalo when other people challenge you on whether or not you're a juggalo oh. enough. And as soon as the people start to say, as soon as people are like, the... oh, you're not a juggalo, you're a, what's it they call it? A, a, a jug a hoe <laughs> or a juffalo. They have multiple words for like not a real juggalo. Okay, jug a hoe I don't like, but. <laughs> <laughs> I still I think don't Jeff understand. Alone, I, under, I don't understand why Jeff we spell ho h o e. Yeah, that really bothers me. I agree. I agree. You don't like the extra e on the No, end? it doesn't no. make any sense. I agree. That be, is a gardening implement. It could be used better for something else. Yes, yes exactly. It exactly. is used We're better wasting for something these else. E's. We're completely wasting it's these. It's a zero sum game with ease. We need these e's. So, um, I mean, I think did you cover the Juggalo March? Yes. Okay. Yes. Maybe I read that. I like oh, I actually I covered it before it happened. I did okay. a, a piece for Vice on the Juggalo March and why other people should care about it. I think I read that, and that was quite good. I mean, it it made me... I mean, I've known about Juggalos. I just thought of it as another counterculture thing people are into, like so many other things. I had no idea kind of the depth of the connection. Like, there were whole families. There were... Yeah, yeah. and I mean... Multi-generational. Yeah, now we find out. What was really provocative about the Juggalo March, I think, is that these are people who identify as apolitical for the most part. And what I thought would it happen really if they funny? were politicized? I mean, because you're working some on that, right? right? Some of them are. I mean, and I think that what I'm working on is more finding the ones who are already mm-hmm. interested in that mm-hmm. and teaching them how not to get arrested mm-hmm. and like better opsec. <laughs> like, because that's, that's they, most of what I they're being to do. targeted. I mean, what I took from the article was that they are being targeted in ways that are completely oh, yeah. unfair and just blanket. Blanket, uh, I don't know, accusations. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you are a marginalized person who is also a juggalo, then of course that becomes way way worse. Right. Uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Struggle of Circus, which is our political Struggle. group, <laughs> <laughs> um, is a black juggalo, and he's like, "Yeah, I've got two targets on my back because I'm black and I also wear Hatchet Man stuff." So Explain like Hatchet Man stuff. Uh, Hatchet Man, the Hatchet Man is the logo for the Insane Clown, or mm-hmm. actually for Psychopathic Records, which is the record label that the Insane Clown Posse created. 
um, which I really like because they're very DIY. So that feeds into like some of my punk rock history where I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. you didn't find a label that would do what you wanted. So you did it yourself. Like, they, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. But they, the, the uh, Juggalos end up looking like, I got to say, a group of Juggalos, kind of scary looking. See, oh, yeah. you know, it's really funny. Look like don't they're think, from the movie The Warriors, maybe. I, well, I mean, see, that, I mean, I'm also in, uh, sorry, we're not a girl gang, um, a uh, agitprop art collective. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is, words, that, that is uh, <laughs> so you awesome. know, we wear vests and we have like a logo and like, you know, we and you have a perfect have name. special bats. Well, we have like, turf. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're a gang, though. We got yeah. turf. We embroider kitty like, on no, our... Like, no turf turfs. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I mean, like, so I, I, that part doesn't bother me. What scares me is a bunch of frat boys. Uh, yes. Like, that's yeah. what scares me, because those frat boys are who is now becoming the neo-Nazis hanging out in our neighborhoods. So I see a bunch of jugglers, and I'm like, oh, you guys are, like, kind of weird and, like, overexcitable and, like, have, like, a middle school understanding of gender and like, on, I, insulting that's I was each other. just going to ask you like, about that. Yeah. But, but, like, whatever. Like, I'm less worried about a guy who's, like, singing songs about I want to murder your face, which is just hilarious to me, than someone who is, like, catcalling me. Plus, they're underdogs. They're underdogs. And, like, honestly, a lot of them are super shy and yeah. super awkward. Yeah, I could see that. I, I do wonder how those worlds, uh, consent culture and juggalos, like, is there a collide. place where they meet? Or do they collide? Yeah. I think that they're meeting more and more. I'm amazed. Yeah. Like, there's a woman, Rachel Paul, who is a juggalette, uh, which is a female juggalo. I figured. No some, way, really? I mean, some, like people, some people don't like the term juggalette because mm-hmm. they, they prefer... Right. They, they like believe the that should be status. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, whatever. Some people really like having a femme version because yep. um, there is power in that, too. Anyway. Um, but she created a, a group called Let's Respect. So, like, juggalette, that oh. spelling of let. Very clever. And that's like a feminist juggalo thing. That so was created a few years ago. And I was like, oh, really? Like, feminist jugglers are a thing? I had no idea. And they took over the Miss Juggalette pageant and were like, we're kicking out Ron Jeremy because he's a sleazebag. And <laughs> oh my God, it's like a it's like a recapitulation Yuck. of seventies. Yeah, feminism. he used to he used to be he used to run the Miss Juggalette pageant. Oof. And it was real gross. <laughs> Not good for the Jews. And what I <laughs> no, and what Ronnie, I like about what she did was she was she made it really clear, like, look, I'm all for juggalettes expressing their sexuality. Like, if that's what you want to do is your talent, I don't fucking care. That's fine. But I don't want you to feel like you should have to. Mm-hmm. Like that shouldn't so be no um, no some soup portion or there is. I or? think that there is, but it's super it's whatever body you positive. Want, whatever you want. Yeah, and yeah, that's okay. another thing I really yeah. love about juggalos yeah. is like. I went to the gathering of the jugglers and I saw so many fat people in bathing suits and I never see that. Right. Like we're right. all super scared unless right. it's like a fat <clears throat> convention. Right. 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 But yeah, jugglers are super chill with like whatever your body looks like. Well, it sounds like uh, just listening to you and reading the stuff about you, if there's another common thread that runs through all your work, it's this idea of community. 
Yeah. And that is sure. definitely, you know, that's a that's a fixed, or not a fixed, but a, a easily identifiable community that all this stuff can coalesce sort of within. And they and they meet my definition of a community because I is? think so. My definition of community is that there is mutual aid, mutual accountability, and mutual responsibility. Oh, that's and lovely. I feel that a lot of things that we call communities, like the kink community or the queer community, doesn't actually have that. It's actually a bunch of communities that are kind of mashed together mm-hmm. because we share a common identity. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're a community because we don't actually care about each other mm-hmm. in that way. So by challenging that and saying, like, well, this is what I think a community is, like, how do we do that? How do we manifest that? Mm-hmm. Juggalos do a pretty good job of that. And they have a really strict idea of uh, justice. That I may not necessarily always agree with. <laughs> is it um, eye for an eye justice? It's, well... Kind of Old Testament stuff? It's a, I mean, they just like to fight with each other anyway, so I, yeah. I don't feel like that's really so much a part of it. I mean, they love wrestling. Like, that's a big part of juggalo culture is wrestling. Like, the Insane Clown Posse was actually doing wrestling stuff, I think, before they were doing rap stuff. Like, that was a big part of their lives. But I remember there was this story that my boyfriend was telling me about a gathering of the Juggalos where some guy had gone around and stolen stuff out of people's tents while everyone was watching the big ICP show. Oh, my God. Then nothing could be less cool than that. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So a bunch of Juggalos found the guy's car and physically ripped it apart with their hands. (laughs) And I was like... I mean, better the car than him. You know yeah, what? Yeah, better the car like, than him. Like, I kind of feel like I, I kind of don't feel bad for him. They're just dispensing justice. And I feel better about that than having the cops get involved because as soon as the cops are allowed into the gathering of the jugglers, yeah. everyone's at risk. I'm not so a big violence guy. Mm, I don't know. I feel like pulling See, the car apart is avoiding violence. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it is. I feel well. I also don't feel that violence against property is really violence. We. I'm pro setting trash cans on fire. Like, (laughs) you know, whatever. On that note, (laughs) Uh, we're actually starting to run out of time. But I kind of want to get a sense of where you're at after this project. Uh, moving forward, do you have something else in the hopper that will involve writing? Because this is a podcast. Yeah, about well, writing. I am currently talking to Haymarket Books about actually writing a book about Juggalos. Hey! Um, oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I wanted to talk. I want to talk about um, Juggalos and their ideas about spirituality, and I want to address some of the things that have come up while I've been doing this deep dive. You keep blowing my mind, like, over and over again. Yeah. Do you feel up to the project of organizing and writing a long book like that? I think so. Yeah. I think so. And I thought about it, and I realized that if I split it up into chapters, and each chapter was, like, 3,000 words, that was manageable. I could do that. Um, Especially because I want to use a lot of quotes from jugglers about how they feel about different things. So I want to talk about jugglers and feminism and misogyny and how they conceptualize that, how they deal with it well and how they don't deal with it well. Um, I want to talk about jugglers and racism, how they deal with that. Like, I think that's interesting and it hasn't really been done before because they just don't get taken seriously. Mm-hmm. It's a very fortuitous twist in your story to end up writing your first book about juggalos. Yeah. <laughs> a couple yeah. years ago, I don't think you would have seen that coming. I, absolutely not. 
absolutely not. I mean, that's not. kind of your thing, though. You're open. Yeah. To whatever well, comes down the pike. And I have been writing about sex work for a really long time, and it's really nice to get away from that. Yeah. <laughs> and do something else. Does it feel like energizing? Yeah. Entering a new space. And I mean, and another book that I really want to write, though I haven't found a place that will publish it yet, is I really want to write a book about leaving sex work without hating it. Because hmm. I think that that's something that doesn't really get talked about. Mm-hmm. True. There was some... Uh, I'm going to call her a porn star because I don't know any other thing to call her. What was her name? And she was on Entourage, but she was doing not not a uh, book. Sasha Gray? Yeah, yeah. She had done similar uh, stuff for Slate, I think. Yeah, yeah. But did and she leave without hating it? Yeah. 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 Okay. She left without hating She's basically, yeah. I got out of it what I wanted. Okay. I'm moving on. Yeah. And I think what I want to talk about, because, I mean, my experience isn't just with porn, but with prostitution and with, like, professional dominatrix work and, like, all these other things. Talk about, like, what skills you learn mm-hmm. by doing these different things and how that translates it into other jobs. Project-based learning. Yeah. And I think that that's going to help people practically make that transition Mm -hmm. because when I wanted to transition out I didn't really have any support and like a lot of rescue agency people would say like oh we want to help you leave the industry and I'd be like cool just like I don't want to get rescued help me with my resume and like help me like get the job training I need so that I can Mm -hmm. get another job that will pay me decently so I can live in the Bay Area and they're like not that part we don't really have any of that but we can give you lots of cupcakes and I'm like that does not help me at all (laughs) Hey, a cupcake know, uh, always helps. A little bit. <laughs> in the moment. Do you know um, Melissa Phoebos? Yeah. The writer? Um, because I wondered, after Whip Smart, she, I mean, she was then a full-time writer. What did she do? Like, how was that transition? How did it happen? I just don't know. So, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Kitty, I know there's a ton of places people can find you online. Why don't you share those with our listeners? Yeah. So, Twitter is where a lot of people find me. I'm You've usually on Twitter. Twitter handle. Uh, yep. At Kitty Striker. It's super oh. easy. I thought you were Antifa Panda something. Well, no, my, my, that's what my name is on there. It's Antifa oh, okay. Trash Panda. Right, right. Um, <laughs> because I was called Antifa Trash because uh, I'm an anti-fascist where's organizer. The pan- where's the panda come from? Because trash pandas are awesome. They're raccoons. I hate raccoons. Oh, <laughs> trash <laughs> See, I, panda. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> so I was like, oh, Antifa Trash Panda. That totes me. <laughs> and then my partner used to raise opossums. So he's a possum and I'm a raccoon. A raccoon. There's a whole t-shirt line here. We, we eat garbage or together. It's great. Frank Zappa albums. <laughs> that too. Um, and also on Facebook, um, I have a, like a writer page. It's officially Kitty Striker. Um, you, you have a website and you have a consent culture website yes. too, right? Yeah, there's uh, kittystriker.com and consentculture.com. Uh, where can they find the Struggalos? Uh, Struggalo Circus is on Twitter under Struggalo Circus and Facebook. How I have to check that out. Are there enough hours in the day? No, dude. Good thing you're Well, young. I mean, I have an Adderall prescription, so this <laughs> really helps. <laughs> Maybe I need one. Bridget. Um, you can find me at Bequintrust on Twitter and Instagram and BridgetQuintAuthor.com. And you guys, would you mind maybe signing up for emails from me? I haven't sent one yet, but... People kept telling me I need to do that. So, Larry, go on to my website and give me your email address. Totally. Okay, thank you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and the Twitter at that Larry Rosen. Um, website for, oops, for my other podcast is itgoodforthejews.com. I think I set a record for mentioning my other podcast the most times on this podcast. As for us here oh, in the Grotto Pod, <laughs> Twitter, the Grotto Pod, uh-huh. at the Grotto Pod. 
Uh, send us an email. You'll be the first. Yes. <laughs> Do send us an email. Autopod at gmail.com. Website. We responded. Calm. Well. <laughs> produces this here podcast. I want to see if I can just keep talking over you. Go, go, you want to try? No, okay. No. All right. Um, I'm, I'm produced, a pool of sweat right now. I am so, so hot. I know. Not at mac- maximum capacity. Produced by the fabulous Beth Weingarner, Lee Kravitz, and Lori Ann Doyle. And music by Sugartown. Hey, Sugartown. That's all for us for today. Uh, we're going to go hose ourselves off. Yep. BQ, take us home. Friends, read, write, and just keep working. Thank you.